Hey, and welcome to the Hashtag Angels podcast, where we bring you conversations about the latest tech trends with the people inventing and shaping them. I'm Jessica Varelli, and this week I'm joined by my co-host, April Underwood. I learned a lot. I'm grateful for the opportunity, but I'm not, I wouldn't say it was fun. <laughs> and we are catching up with Heather Fernandez, CEO and co-founder of Solve Health. There were not pivots as much as there were massive accelerations of things that we planned to do that all of a sudden became the imperative to do. We dig into her path from politics and PR into tech, early advice she got from Bill Gurley about consumer marketplaces, and how she scaled Solve to handle more than 10x the traffic during COVID in 2020. If you're enjoying the show, hit subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. Thanks for listening and let's jump in. Welcome, Heather. We're so excited to have you. I'm going to share a little bit about your background before letting you take the mic and share the stories in your own words. Heather is the CEO and co-founder of Solve Health, a consumer healthcare company backed by Benchmark, Greylock, and Acrew, which offers convenient care for everyone. She also serves on the public board of Atlassian. And in 2020, Solve had a massive growth year as they help consumers book same-day doctor's appointments, including COVID tests and care. So there's just so much to go into here, um, Heather. And I think a great starting point for us and our listeners would be just that leap into tech. Mm, yeah. Um, no, thank you guys for having me and letting me talk about it. Um, hopefully, what some of your listeners hear in that background is that it's okay to be nonlinear. Hell yeah. Right. I think there's this meme in tech that you have to have been working out of a garage um, for some amount of time building a bunch of things to become a tech founder. And it's just not true. Totally. I'm going to go way, way back and then I'll jump to your question. You know, I grew up as a kid of immigrants in LA and I had two things that I, that sort of fired me up. One of them was politics and American government. Um, and the other one was tech. They were just the things that I was interested in. And so I bought a one-way ticket to DC um, after undergrad, had no idea how critical nepotism is to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> Since my parents effectively voted, and that was the extent of our political participation. It's hard to know about nepotism if you don't get it, right? <laughs> Who, knew? Who knew? Everyone was like, yeah, my uncle served as the director of this campaign, and my, my, st my, my, um, you know, my grandfather was the governor. And I was like, holy shit. Like, like, I'm just qualified and came here to apply for the job. I didn't realize. That's a crazy coincidence. Like, what are the odds? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was like, I had just like begged my mom for a one-way ticket on Southwest to move to D.C. because I just thought I wanted to get a job on Capitol Hill. And so here I am. Um, you know, and so I, I did that. I worked on the Hill for two different congressmen. I worked on McCain's 2000 presidential campaign, Straight Talk Express, John McCain, not Sarah Palin, John McCain, very different <laughs> campaigns. Um, and, you know, so I was on the Hill and on the campaign through that tech bubble. Right. So 1999, 2000, and we had all of these people, mostly dudes, um, come into congressional offices or testify. And my the reality was I like tech as a user, but I had zero understanding of the business. Mm. The things that I spent a bunch of time on growing up were, you know, uh, subscribing to the National Review, The Nation, the New Republic <laughs> and various political magazines just to understand the political, like what was going on. Because again, it wasn't something that we discussed at the dinner table. And I never spent any time trying to understand business. Mm. So there was this like combination of there's a business thing that I probably should understand, 
right? If I want to be effective in my role in government and politics and policy, um, and there's this tech thing happening where I, I'm using technology as a thing that I like to use, but I just don't understand it. And so at the end of the McCain campaign, which by the way, we won New Hampshire, <laughs> and we were the first campaign to raise over a million bucks on the internet in 24 hours. Amazing. And I was part of that and it was fucking awesome. Can I curse? That's awesome. Oh, hell yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It Especially. was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. Um, which seems so inconsequential now given how much money is being raised, but it was a big deal then. Um, and what I realized when I looked around was if I stick around, I, I could probably get a pretty cool job. But I don't at all understand how the outside works. I don't understand how business works. And so I'm going to go work in business, tech being my preferred part of business. Didn't had no idea what that meant. Um, and then I'll come back sometime. And so that campaign ended. After we won New Hampshire, we ended up losing the primary. Um, and I just made a bunch of phone calls. And I asked people, what does someone with my background do in the Silicon Valley? Like, I have no idea what job I'm qualified for. Um, I met a bunch of people who said, well, you're a press secretary. There's this thing called public relations and you should go do that. And I was like, cool, I'll go get a public relations job in the Silicon Valley. <laughs> and that's what brought me <laughs> to San Francisco. I, love um, it. And I ended up working for a woman named Simone Otis, who was the founder of Blanc and Otis, okay. which was an incredibly uh, high profile tech PR firm at the time. And she said to me, you speak really fast, you seem smart, and I have a group of high-maintenance men, and I think you would be great with them, given what you've done in politics. <laughs> and my primary clients were venture capitalists, <laughs> consultants, and bankers in the Silicon Valley. And that's how I got here in 2000. I love it. And, and what, was that world li- what was that world like then, even doing, um, sort of doing PR for tech clients at a time where... Um, the press as well as the general public was potentially maybe a bit more optimistic um, about the industry, but also obviously had a much higher sort of educational bar to hurdle. You know, it was great. <laughs> you know, there was just a lot of enthusiasm around what was possible in tech. You know, I didn't at the time when I first moved here in 2000, I wasn't working with the startups. I was working with the investors. Right. And I was working with right. the bankers. And so what was really cool for someone who had no idea how business worked, is my first, my training wheels were an introduction to what is venture capital, right? And how does that feed a technology ecosystem? Mm -hmm. And it taught me early on that venture capitalists are just like the rest of us, Mm. right? Like they have a product, they're trying to find a market, they're trying to develop a platform that people know them for, and they're fighting for customers in the same way that at Solve and at all companies we're fighting for customers. So it was a really interesting angle to enter tech, Mm -hmm. you know, because I remember asking Simone, like, what do these venture capitalists do? (laughs) Like, explain to me again what the role is, what the job is. Especially in 2000. I mean, yeah. it's, it's yeah. interesting to look back. I mean, 2020, I, my very first job out of college was actually working as like a summer intern at a, at a VC firm because I was blogging about mobile apps and um, interested in it. But look at this you was, blogging. But this was, um, this, was, no, but this was 2007. And even at that point, venture was such a cottage industry that was so yeah. opaque that mm-hmm. was just a handful of small firms. And even getting a little glimpse, yeah. I think, helped just give a little bit of insight and framing into you know, how money moves in Silicon Valley and the role of VCs and founders and companies. And for me, like you, I didn't grow up with much of this business acumen through 
my childhood. And so just getting that glimpse yeah. wherever you could um, early on ended up being so valuable. Yeah, so valuable. Just They're a part of the ecosystem, just like all of us are part of the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. And just having a clear-eyed view of what that looked like from their side was, you know, I had no idea at the time I'd end up as a startup founder 20 years later. I mean, had you had you told me that, I would have told you you were out of your freaking mind. It's like, what, <laughs> right. me? Um, but I mean, that was so advantageous uh, through the journey that then ended up getting me here. So, you know, sometimes yeah. some hard work and chance um, ends you in a good place. Absolutely. Well, so so you had your you had your PR career, yep, and then you started thinking maybe I want to be on the inside. It's exactly what happened. You know, I was working by then. We started working with some of the tech companies. And again, I was on the outer ring of how the business worked. And it's going to sound so naive, but I just wanted to understand what happened on the inside business, like the inside of the business, but I didn't know what role would be appropriate for me. Um, And so I looked around this awesome PR firm and I looked at the smartest person at the firm and she went to business school. And so I thought, well, shit, I guess I have to go to business school (laughs) 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 to figure that out. Right, to sort of get to that next level of business acumen right. because there was no obvious job that felt like the right job for me that I was really interested in. Right, I could have gone straight in a PR capacity and I loved PR and I still love storytelling and I think PR is so powerful and comms is so powerful, but that wasn't where my energy was. My energy was how does a business work and then what is my place in it? And so I went to Stanford. <laughs> So yeah. and so I had to go to Stanford <laughs> Business School. Uh, there was I had no other option. <laughs> I actually didn't because I didn't care that much about going to business school. It just seemed like the right thing to do. So I applied to one school and was like, if I get in, great. And if not, I'll do this PR thing and it'll put me in a good place eventually. And so, yeah. in fact, April, I had no other choice. <laughs> it only takes one. So uh, it there you go. It only takes one. And thank God for that wait list. <laughs> <laughs> From there, you ended up as, I think, the 20th employee at Trulia, um, which is also an just incredible journey. What was the, the yeah. leap or moment um, that inspired you to jump in there? The part of, that may be interesting for the listeners is, you know, I, I thought what I wanted was to work on a product as a product manager, mm. right? That was in my head. Like I'm, I was working on thought platforms and, um, you know, messaging, but I was like, I want to hold a thing in my hand that I worked on. Um, and so I got my dream internship that in business school, which was to work in product marketing at Apple. And I got to work on the iPod and it was so cool. It's such um, an iconic product and such an iconic company. It's an iconic product, iconic company. And I realized probably within the first two weeks that it was totally the wrong job for me. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, well, Heather, I don't know if you know this, but I also did my business school internship at Apple. Yes. I didn't even know that. I did not do product. I was like, I need to do something different. I've already been a PM. I mean, I'm a 25-year-old PM. I obviously know everything about it, so I should try something else. So I did a marketing role, and I similarly had a real... uh, I spent a lot of time in the parking lot pretty unhappy that summer, to be honest. I learned a lot. I'm grateful for the opportunity, but I wouldn't say it was fun. Yes, 100%. You know, and I looked at the people who were effective... um, you know, product marketers at Apple. And I thought like, that's not me, right? Like the, Mm -hmm. um, there are components of the job that seem really fun, but I don't think I'll ever be great at that. And for me, this was all just process of discovery. Yep. And so post-business school, I did a short stop at Morgan Stanley, which absolutely was the wrong job for me. 
been there also with the iBanking. Yeah. And then to answer your question, I had breakfast. (laughs) I had breakfast with an entrepreneur one morning. By the way, I hope this is not too long and you're going to cut all of this stuff out of your podcast. This is such a long background. No, this is fabulous (laughs) because I think there are so many people that end up in that role for a summer or they're they're working in D.C. and they they see what's going on in tech and they want to weigh in and they just haven't had all those things click yet. And they're in that parking lot and they're like, yeah, you know what? I tried it. This isn't the right role, and it can feel so discouraging. So I think just hearing these bumps along the way have happened to Heather Fernandez, who is the CEO and co-founder of an incredible company. I just, I love it. Keep rolling with it. All right. Cut out the best parts then. Um, (laughs) And so I'll tell you my real parking lot story was I had breakfast with an entrepreneur while I was at Morgan Stanley. He was telling me about his third company. It was in biotech. I understood very little about what he was doing, but he had so much fire in his storytelling about Mm. what he was doing and how much energy he had in that role. And so I went into my car. I started bawling in this parking lot and I called my husband and said, I have to quit. Like, Mm. I can't do this. I can't. Like, I Mm -hmm. thought with this shift to Morgan Stanley that I could just be really good and then do the stuff that I really loved on the side. Right. But just not who I am. Like, if you look back on the jobs that energized me and what has energized me since, the job and who I am are very much combined, right? And being a whole, my whole person at the job and having real passion and fire for the work that I do is just part of how I like to work. And I have the privilege that I get to do that. And so right. at that moment, I made some rules for myself. Uh, I quit my job two weeks later. Um, he, my husband wouldn't Perfect. let me quit that day. He said that would probably be imprudent. <laughs> you should Sleep think on about it. this. <laughs> yeah, make, make sure you're, you you want to leave. Um, and I had just had some rules. I have to be uh, fired up about the problem we're solving. Doesn't have to be like so dramatically mission aligned, but I just have to think it's cool. Was my framing at the time. Um, I need to work at a place where I can be my whole self, mm-hmm. and like that whole self is a profile that will be successful. Versus at Morgan Stanley, I felt like I sort of had to put on a, a suit of armor. That's just not, it's not fun for me. I don't want to yeah. do that. I want my whole self to be what makes me successful. Um, and it had to be sub 20 people. Hmm. And so I went on an adventure. I gave myself a three meetings per week um, minimum requirement. And I was just talking to anyone who would talk to me to figure out what size company, where do I want to be. Um, and I ended up at Trulia. So thankfully, because of an awesome guy named Greg Waldorf who was an advisor to me before then. Um, and uh, Pete Flint and Sami Inkinen, the co-founders, were the year behind me at the GSB, but I didn't know them. And so I interviewed with them early in the process, met a bunch of companies, and then you know everything converged. I think I was employee number 12, but it's hard to know. Hard to know in Amazing. retrospect what the actual number was. And it was great. And I told my husband, uh, I might be here for a year um, or longer. I'm not really sure. It seems right, like what they're doing. Um, you know, and nine years and change later, three kids and a real business, uh, we went public and then we uh, ended up selling to Zillow for two and a half billion bucks. So we got to have a real startup story. And I'm just so thankful for that experience and all the roles I got to play um, sort of along the way. That's amazing. No, it's amazing. I was actually at Twitter for nine years. And one thing I yeah. one thing I remember was um, at a certain point, people would just start asking, like, how long? It's, <laughs> no, bear, bear in mind, Silicon Valley business norms are different because to our parents, yes. it's like nine years, 
like, okay, you know, talk to me when when you hit your Getting first started. and second decade. Exactly. Um, but I remember at a certain point, people would sort of ask me, like, how long have you been there now? Like five <laughs> yeah. years, six years, seven years? But um, totally. I remember when I eventually decided to leave, because um, I just felt like I had lived out as much of the journey as I could there. Um, yeah. Learned so much, took on so many different roles. But I actually remember the incredible just sense of gratitude I had for the depth of relationships I was able to build. Yeah. A a lot of that had to do with just tenure. Like you kind of had to go through the ups and the downs. You had to see it through a bunch of chapters. So for me, that like that longer journey actually um, gave the experience so much of its depth. Um, So I'm curious for for you, Uh, you held a bunch of different roles too, I think Mm -hmm. over time. Um, I did. Will you tell us a little bit more about that journey at Trulia? Yeah. I mean, I was sort of long-term selfish, not short-term selfish is the way I think about it, right? There were many times, I I could talk about my Trulia history in four very beautiful bullet points and it's like, wow, how great. But the reality of any company is there's a shitload of grind Mm. in there. There's a bunch of you're working on something and it no longer matters. You got to work on something else. There's like a long time where you're in a bunch of meetings thinking like, I'm pretty sure what we're doing is all wrong. (laughs) And and you fight through it and you get to the other side. And I always had sort of this long-term selfish point of view, not short-term selfish. And I felt like people, and I mean both of those in a positive way, right? Like I wanted to, I wanted to build the thing and I knew that it would be messy in between. And where you saw a lot of people leave, and I think this happens a lot in the Valley, is there's always something better. Yep. Like, oh, something always looks better. On Very paper, shiny. the investor, it's shiny, it's a new category. And that just didn't, I think, I think a lot of people, you know, got pulled by that. And that happens a lot. And that's why it's hard to retain great talent in the Valley. Um, but one, I, I just think I had that, I, I'm going to stick this out and I want to build it point of view. Um, two, which is not to uh, not to be minimized, is I had three kids while I was there. Mm. And so one thing that helps you be long-term selfish versus short-term is I was sort of barely surviving <laughs> on all <laughs> elements of building the company and, uh, you know, building spawning children and <laughs> trying to stay married and not be a shitty wife and hopefully be a good wife. And so I think that that's had to be a part of it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, is that I had both of those things happening. And when I think about Trulia, I, I think about um, all the phases of interviewing. And I would tell people, like, this is the best time to come. Mm. Right? This is now the best time to come. And I meant it every time. But I think for me, there was enough different through that adventure of growth and grind and figuring it out um, and getting to scale that it always felt like this was the time. Wait, like, what, however long I've already been here, we fought that hard to get here now. So come on board. Um, right. So, you know, and then in terms of the roles, and my boys are standing right outside the door being very noisy. The chorus of life. <laughs> I don't know if I locked the door. Let me double check. That lock that I put on my office door is absolutely the best purchase I've made in all of 2000. <laughs> <laughs> a very COVID era purchase. Just right. a little separation between yeah, work and life. Um. What was Heather? What was your first role? Because initially you had the you had done the PR and press side of things. Mm-hmm. What was that first role when you when you joined Trulia? Director of consumer marketing, mm-hmm. right? Which when you're twelve people meant I wrote press releases and I wrote website copy, and I sat next to the engineers and learned 
SQL so I could download data to talk about it <laughs> externally. Mm-hmm. And I made coffee and I sat around and drank beer. You know, I did all the things. Yep. All the roles. And how did that change over time? Um, You know, soon I took over all of marketing. Um, And, you know, as you know, in a marketplace, your B2B marketing engine is a critical part of what you are building. Um, When it became time to sort of put money and even more uh, resources around marketing, I sort of felt a pull to get closer to revenue. And we were interviewing um, VPs of sales at the time. And we were a product and analytics-driven company, and we knew nothing about sales. And so everyone we interviewed, we hated. (laughs) Uh, And the reality is we just had no idea what a really great head of sales looked like. Um, And I raised my hand, and I said to first Paul Levine and then Pete Flint, give me that job. Like, let me be the VP of sales. And the great benefit you have, Jess, when you stick it out like you and I did at Twitter, you you at Twitter, me at Trulia, is they give you jobs that no one in their right mind would ever give you externally. <laughs> like no one would give me the job to be VP of sales. Totally true. Like going from very few million in revenue to lots more revenue. Um, and so that was my switch over to revenue. Not too long after that, we orged in a GM structure and I became the GM of the B2B business, which as you know, is the lifeblood. It is the basis of how do you create a marketplace I know there's lots of chicken and egg and top 10 lists of how to start a marketplace, but you need supply. <laughs> Whether you get it before yeah. or after, you need supply. And so that ended up being a cross-functional team. Um, and a story that I tell was our CFO at the time, Sean Agarwal, said to me, um, how do you like being the CEO? And I was like, what are you talking about? I'm like the SVP of blah, 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 whatever my title is. And he's like, don't you see, you're effectively the CEO of this business Mm. as the GM. Mm -hmm. And it actually took me probably weeks to grok what he was saying and then realize like, there is a part of this job of putting the pieces together that I'm actually really good at and I enjoy doing and I'm super energized by. Yep. Right? Like that, that build and that role in the build is the role where I think I'm actually best. And it took sort of Sean... So many years after business school, so many years after talking to entrepreneurs and never seeing myself as one, sort of took that conversation from me like, oh shit, like maybe this is the job that I'm really good at. Yeah. I, I have a similar story um, in, in just, you know, that moment when somebody says something like that to mm-hmm. you, where you're like, it, it wasn't, so, it's not something you're trying to do. Um, and it's not, um, and and it's not even something you have awareness of, but when other people start to see it, um, it is it can start to change your perception of yourself and your capabilities and your um, and your interests and your aspirations and that sort of stuff. And I I, I throughout my career, I've at times wished that I didn't you know sort of I, I wish I wasn't so influenced by people making little <laughs> offhand comments like that. I'm like wow, I really need some inspiration along the way. But yeah. you know, it's powerful, and so it's a gift that yeah. you can always give to other people mm. too. And I do that I, I do that 100%. consciously now too. Tell you know tell an amazing head of marketing, like you're going to run a platform someday. I don't know what yes. it is, but I, I know you're going to do it. Um, yes. And, you know, hopefully that, that shifts her perception of herself. Yeah. You, you know, April, I'm not mad at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like I just, I didn't grow up in a world and an environment where like, you're going to be the next tech CEO. <laughs> totally. And so yeah. like, I yeah. think that um, like those moments are such a gift of what other people, mm-hmm. when other people see a thing that you don't see. Yeah. And I think the role of the person in that seat is is listen, right? Because it may be as explicit as this 
comment that I heard from our CFO. It may be less explicit, but people will give you observations that maybe are not as obvious to you. Um, and I think it's great to be intentional and and make sure that mm-hmm. you're we are the people who are helping people see it, you know, yeah. when they may not be able to see it in the mirror. That's amazing. Well, so now you are a I am. founder, co-founder. I am. And your co-founder is is that that first person you met at Trulia, right? He is. Well, I like to say I started Trulia long before him. It's like two months or so. Okay. okay <laughs> <laughs> he was like in the 20s. <laughs> but he was our VP of engineering. Um, you know, we we ended Trulia um, and I really had no idea what I wanted to do with my life at that point. I, I knew I wanted to build. Like I love building businesses. I love building marketplaces. I knew I didn't want to be at a really big public company because that's just not my jam, what I think is fun. And I still have the will and the energy to build. Um, But I was talking to a bunch of companies. He and I both found ourselves talking to really early stage startups. Mm. And we were both really oriented on healthcare, like purely by interest. Like at this, we want to work on, take our, our tools and our talents and put them against a really big, meaningful consumer problem. Education and healthcare were the two that we sort of started with, and we both just really started leaning and tilting towards healthcare and trying to figure out, well, let me back up. We, we were interviewing at startups, and one day, right. we're like having lunch, and he's like, you're talking to startups, and I'm talking to startups. Should we? Should we do <laughs> Should this we? together? <laughs> figure something out? Um and literally, it's not like I spent my back half of time at Trulia thinking, I can't wait to build this and go start my own company, right? And so what we did at that moment effectively was commit to each other the year, till the end of the year, to explore, is there a company for us to build together in healthcare? You know, and while we'll have to learn a lot about healthcare, we had a hard requirement that we had to bring some superpower to the table, which in our case, the most obvious one is a consumer marketplace, recognizing it would look mm-hmm. different. But we knew, we, so we sort of understand the fundamentals of marketplaces. We know how to hire those kind of people. We knew that, you know, within the organization we just came from, that, you know, you would end up with pretty significant attrition over the next two years. So we'd end up with a really great hiring pool um, that we just worked with over this very long period of time. So we committed to each other a year. Um, the end of that year, we both took a month-long vacation because I just said, I can't talk to you. Like, we haven't taken any vacation. Go away. (laughs) I need to go hang out with my family, and let's decide at the beginning of the year. And by that March, I think we raised our first money from Benchmark. That's incredible. And what year is this? 2017 at this point? 2016. Okay. Right? So it was us and a deck. Um, And we had the good fortune in that year of exploration to spend a lot of time with venture capitalists, Mm -hmm. um, who all were really thinking about the same problem we were thinking about. Um, Bill Gurley ended up being one of those that we spent a lot of time with, did a lot of our Mm -hmm. early ideation with. And so by the time we were actually fundraising with the business plan and the model for Solve, right, of how do you connect consumers with high quality care, right? How do you think about answering a couple of basic questions? Where should I go? When can I be seen? And how much does it cost? Like, what is the technology that you're going to build? But also, and importantly, especially in healthcare, what is the right go to market, Mm -hmm. right? He was in a way part of, those discussions as we were figuring that out for ourselves. And so we started in 2016 and here we are today. 
And so, yeah, tell us about the business, the state of the business today. And yes. then, um, and then we can, uh, we want to hear a lot about how you kind of think about the problem set, the market, um, yeah. some of the, the tactics and strategies you guys have used to make such incredible progress in these first few years. Well, thanks, April. Um, you know, what's funny about healthcare is when you tell anyone I'm working in healthcare, everyone is immediately excited because they're like, yeah, it sucks. Like, what are you working on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because everyone has some experience, which is painful, right? When we looked at the the now $3.5 trillion category, what we realized was most of that category are things that we were either not the right people to try and solve the problem, or they were just problems we weren't that interested in working in. Because what we were really interested in is what is happening with consumer behavior in this super complex category of healthcare, where you've got providers on one side, and those are getting bigger and bigger, and you've got payers on the other side, and they're getting bigger and bigger. And then really you have employers, right, who are also payers. But where is the consumer in all of that? Where's the big power center for the consumer? And why doesn't that exist? Um, Because I think fundamentally, when you think about transformation in healthcare in the United States, it's going to take all of those parties and government to make transformation happen. We are best equipped. We are most fired up to focus on enabling the consumers to be a part of that change, right? And so we started looking at how do consumers engage with care? We identified a couple of pretty critical trends, right? One is consumers are disaggregating healthcare in a way that did not happen 10 years ago, right? Whether that's your home delivery of drugs or your mental health app that you use periodically, that's part chat, or maybe it's synchronous, you know, or it's your going to CVS in order to get a flu shot, right? There's a disaggregation of care happening because not all healthcare instances need to be treated the same, right? Historically, when all of us grew up, like our parents would make an appointment to the doctor, <laughs> we would go to the doctor, you'd sit in the waiting room, like you'd go into the room, you would do something for 15 minutes, no matter what the issue was. Right, and you would leave. Right. This disaggregation means not all of the not all of the instances need to be treated that way, and so that was a trend we already saw was happening, um, with a really heavy bent on um, really retail as a front door of medicine. Right. The second trend that we saw was just purely demographic. Right. This expectation as millennials are now the parents of multiple children. Um, who are making healthcare decisions with just a different expectation on how things should work mm-hmm. and a much higher trust to do that, most of that in an app. And Heather, I just I have to pay you the compliment of the uh, the Solve website and app is just awesome. For folks that are looking for like how to get a COVID test, I know we're going to talk about this, but yes. it just looks like consumer software. So easy to find a book and appointment. It feels like something that we're accustomed to using. So I can see that first principle coming to life and what you've built. Thank you so much. I mean, the, the funny thing, of course, actually, I got some advice early on. Um, this was from Bill. And it was consumer marketplaces and great consumer technology companies are oftentimes amplifying a consumer trend, mm-hmm. not creating a totally new paradigm. Mm-hmm. There are really cool things that create new paradigms. <laughs> but that actually was really helpful because then what Daniele and I did in our search through 2015 was try and identify what are consumers already doing, mm-hmm. right, that we can enable and amplify to empower them to make their decisions. And that will be your launching off point, mm-hmm. right? And so the great insight was that after, of these 1 billion ambulatory visits per year, and these are when you're not in the hospital, 
basically when you go to the doctor in layman's terms, right? Fully 150 million of them were in this big category of retail medicine. And that could be your pharmacist, your CVS, that could be the urgent care, that could be telemedicine. But all of the, the tech buzz was about telemed. At the time, telemed was probably, it's sub 4% of overall visits, right? Really closer probably to two or three. Mm. But that was what everyone was talking about and where the funding was. And the vast majority of those, I mean, sizing is rough, call it, you know, 125, 130 of those were in these urgent care clinics across the country where people were going as effectively their everyday care, mm-hmm. where, you, where people used to go to primary care. Um, a lot of people pushed back on us early on, especially those from the industry saying, why do you not want consumers to go to primary care? And that is not true. Right? If all of us had a known primary care physician that we could go see for the rest of our lives, that would be great. The data is very clear. But like I said, this disaggregation is happening. There, is not, there are not enough physicians for that to happen today. And so consumers are already exhibiting this behavior. right? And so let's help them answer more of their questions and then guide them to their next step. But let's start at this entry point. And that was probably the earliest insight that, you know, consumers are really thinking around when it comes to their everyday healthcare, access and convenience was more important than known provider. Mm-hmm. And they were making decisions and the data was crystal clear. Right. Right. And that's sort of what set us off. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that, that I think that's so akin to so many other categories where consumer expectations have just been, the, the, the line has been pushed so far right. that um, the consumers want to be able to do anything they do last minute and with great convenience, which is yes. which speaks to a need for a, a marketplace that offers more um, liquidity in the supply side, because it's not going to work if you know if you decide you want to see your doctor and it's it's one guy and you need to see him today. Exactly. It just the light you know, most of the time you're going to be disappointed in that experience. And and what is happening is people still want to see that woman or guy as their physician yeah. in addition yeah. to getting what they need tomorrow, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> and so I might be going to get my COVID test. I might be going to see if I have strep. I might be going to look at a rash if I need to escalate that through telemed. And I will also go to my primary care physician, but I'm not going to wait that two weeks that's required for me to actually have that visit. And so- you know, you asked me how far we've come. I mean, as I as I look back, it is one of the decisions that we made that was really right, which was, you know, urgent care in many ways was sort of at this like innovative front end of delivering more consumer centric care. Mm-hmm. And the great thing about it is it was being ignored by the industry. <laughs> and so we were able to get to scale. Right. Um and so, you know, we look at our, we think about our footprint nationally in terms of how many people are within proximity of a same day appointment. Um, the data is somewhere between, you know, 80 to 100 million Americans are within five miles of a bookable same day appointment, right, across all 50 states. And now with telemedicine, five miles for an in person, but availability via telemedicine across the state, um, we've actually connected. It's around 26 million consumers with a provider through the platform since inception. Mm. And then what happened in 2020, we could have never expected. Yeah. And so should I launch into that? Yeah, please. I mean, <laughs> yeah. um, I just think for everything I've read about this year for the company, yeah. I think you said 
6X growth. You've got 6 million people a month now coming to the app looking for care. Will you talk to us about like in Q1 as COVID started to yeah. become apparent what you were seeing in your community of providers and patients and, and how as a leader, how you how you adapt in those moments of just crisis and a little bit of uncertainty too? Absolutely. I mean, thinking about Q1 of 2020 is feels like roughly 1 million years ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> At this point, last millennia, you know, yeah. all of us were reading the papers and hearing about this this issue that was existing outside of our borders, and everyone thought it might land in the United States, um, but we don't know when. We happen to have one partner who's actually now a strategic investor in ours after working through this together, MultiCare Health System, who's a an incredible uh, regional health system in the Pacific Northwest. And if you guys recall those that. The first stories in the U.S. were around a nursing home um, in the Seattle area mm-hmm. or Tacoma area. That nursing home happened to be a mile away from our partners, this multi-care and some of their facilities. And so what happened that first week of March is we effectively you know, cleared our calendars, had, had a war room of sorts on the phone with them to try and figure out what to do. And priority number one was we need to be able to triage people and make sure they don't come in if they might have COVID while we get equipped and make sure that we have the PPE for our teams, because there was a very clear realization that if this is as bad as everyone was saying, like we're not going to have a functioning facility. So what happened was we got to be on the ground right when really the country was figuring out what was going on hand in hand with our partners. And so immediately we started spreading the word, right? Here's what we're seeing. And we were sending it across the country to our partners, to our distribution list, for people who are not paying customers, because we just wanted people to have visibility. And it was so interesting. Um, we got a lot of pushback. Huh. Hmm. The, me- the media is alarmist. Wow. Right? It, that's not happening here in X state. And these were these were people who would end up being very much on the front lines. Hmm. Um, and there's people in our larger network. And so that was really interesting, seeing that play out on the ground. And then as a business, what it enabled us to do is, frankly, you know, people ask me about the pivots of this year. There were not pivots as much as there were massive accelerations of things that we planned to do Mm -hmm. that all of a sudden became the imperative to do. So Mm -hmm. the things that happened over that year, over this past year, I really put in two buckets, right? The first bucket is just digitization of everything right? When it comes to our healthcare, right? Think about anything that you did regarding your healthcare in 2019 or before. It likely included a bunch of papers, mm-hmm. right? Sitting in some waiting room somewhere. Yep. And, you know, multiple points of friction. And all of a sudden, sort of with this digitization, first was telemed, we could not go to the provider. So every provider that we had on Solve, while they've been talking about telemedicine for the past many years, all of a sudden they had to do it to see any of their patients. And so we had this massive surge of existing customers, adding telemedicine, new customers who needed telemedicine, doing it in a fast and easy and HIPAA compliant way, right? So that they could actually see their patients. Um, And within this bucket, I would put, you then started having consumer concerns around sitting in waiting rooms, consumer concerns around paperwork and touching the pens. That was already part of the Solve (laughs) SaaS software suite, Mm -hmm. right? Digital paperwork, telemedicine, a contactless waiting room experience, right? Are all parts and components of the product that were either partially or fully in production, which then we just had to accelerate because we just didn't expect to have so much demand 
and adoption at one point in time. Right. And so, you know, we had sort of the technology stress on the system, right? You build differently, as you ladies both know, if you expect to have <laughs> 10 people using something versus we've now had one, we had 9,000 total telemedicine visits in all of 2019. Telemedicine, that's inconsequential. Mm-hmm. It was sort of a product on a shelf. We knew we would mm-hmm. use it and deploy it. Um, from mid-March to now, it's roughly 1.1 million telemedicine visits. Wow. And that's not, that's, you know, it surged to probably 60, 70% of total visit volume in, call it April, May. It's now Mm -hmm. closer to 20%, but it's normalized at a much higher rate than it used to. So that's one big transformation that's happened, right? Then we had sort of operational pain organizationally, which is, we, 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 we used to onboard, you know, a handful per day, and now we have dozens per day or hundreds per day that need to onboard. Um, and so like fixing your internal processes. So... You know, it, it was what motivated us, however, through all of this was we were going through this COVID transformation like the rest of the country, like the rest of the world. And as software people, we got to play a part in the solution. Yeah. Yeah. And that was super motivating. Um, and so this like the whole digitization wave was the first big one. And then the second, of course, was COVID testing. It just speaks to sort of the raw materials that you have built in terms of the vision, in terms of an understanding of the market, but also the team and your own experience that, you know, another company might have found itself in the same spot you were in, but didn't have that muscle memory of what it looks like to go through 10x or 100x, 100x growth to be able to basically like execute on a plan to evolve how you're running the operation to, to you know, how you need to evolve the software and how you make sure the service stays up and all those sorts of things. So like, I mean, it's just, I mean, yeah. you were ready um, and, um, and it's not an accident. Um, and um, it's really incredible that you guys have not only sort of gotten gotten through this but actually like have have sort of like just accelerated even faster well thank you april um it's true i mean a lot of the raw material was there because there's a belief we 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 started solve with a belief that you know consumers should be able to have a more frictionless experience through healthcare right answer those fundamental questions and the how that we do that is by partnering with more innovative providers who want to deliver that experience through our software, right? And so we had the components. What we could have never anticipated was the dramatic need. Right. And so certainly there were shifts to roadmap. Certainly there were, you know, things were deprioritized, other things were reprioritized. And I don't want to underestimate that internally in an organization, that's hard to, it's hard. Mm-hmm. Well, will you dive into that in terms of leading <clears throat> leading the organization through this, just between both setting that vision and motivation, but also trying to care for your team as folks are, I'm sure, working around the clock trying to meet the meet the moments, but also as a leader trying to set the set the right parameters so your team can be successful um, um, yeah. amidst just all the challenges of 2020. You know, we have tried, you know, and I can't say that we've been wildly successful on all fronts. But I will say a couple of things. Um, one is we made the decision early on to lead with transparency, right? There are some things that we know are happening. There are some that we are not sure. And so, you know, there's a counterpoint, which is not every person on your team wants to know about the uncertainty, right? There are <laughs> big cohorts of your company that just want to believe things are going in the right direction and have clarity on like what that means they're supposed to do. And we just made the decision that we can't provide that. 
Mm-hmm. Right. Like we can either give you visibility and give you clarity where we have it and be try try and be as transparent as possible where we don't, or the, the pendulum swing to the other side, um, which is be less transparent. And we the conclusion was one, people join solve because they want it, at least one of the reasons is they want to be part of a growth startup. And by the way, this is what it feels like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was number one. Two is we thought if we lead with transparency, we'll get better answers. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, like we hired an incredible group of people. Our bar is high. And the more that they know, the more they can ask questions that I'm not when I'm not in the room and Daniele is not in the room, you know, when the leadership team's not in the room. So that's on the where are we going as a company side. And then in terms of the trying to take care of the team, you know, I think we did what a lot of other companies tried to do. Right. Was like talk about it. Right. Uh, what's really interesting about this year was there's a level of authenticity that we just can't hide from. Yeah. Right. Whether it's your kids busting in or you have to go and, you know, help the kids with school because there's no caretakers or the the uh, loneliness of, of people on the team who live alone and feel isolated and can't go elsewhere. So one is we talked about it. Um, we put in place a mental health benefit. Right. Which is just like use this money to do something. And like we sort of define the parameters. We invited people to put blocks on their calendar, whether that was for, um, that's I need downtime, like don't need an excuse. Or if it's like consistent blocks around the kids and we invited people to do that more visibly, we did that visibly. Um, and so I think just it's, it's a number of these types of things that we've done um, to try and make sure there's clear acknowledgement. Oh, and of course, tracking, you know, surveying and tracking so we give it, have a sense of what's going on. You know, I think in startup land, I think everywhere, 2021 will be interesting, mm-hmm. right? Because companies tried, we certainly tried. Um, I think a lot of people probably stayed put because there was just so much turbulence in the world. And I certainly hope that our approach, you know, puts us on the positive side of retention and growth of the team because I was just, I was mindful of the of the pretty significant pressures that were on people personally as well as professionally. Mm-hmm. Right on the one hand, it was incredible we're doing something that matters. On the other, it's like I'm stressed out and I have all this pressure and there's more work to do. Right, and so just acknowledging that. Yeah. Well, so looking ahead, yes. you're sitting in this like observation deck of the COVID landscape. Um, you know, how does that factor into your strategy going forward? And and do you have any good news? <laughs> or, <laughs> I do. Or uh, do glimmers have... of hope for our, for our <laughs> listeners. I mean, look, I'm a founder, so I'm a natural optimist. <laughs> um, so I that's my disclaimer. Um, you know, I talk about the first surge of growth that we saw at Solve. The second one was really around COVID testing, mm. right? We built this platform where, and both the consumer site, which is very transactional, right? At Trulia, just back in history, we built a site and we we optimized not just for people who were looking to buy or rent right now, we optimized for looky-loos because we knew that if you came to Trulia or wonderful Zillow, April, good job. Wow, stock price, whoa. <laughs> Whoa. April's on the board of Zillow. April's on the board of Zillow. It is correct. <laughs> Check out Zillow stock price. It is absolutely well-deserved. So, you know, at that, at Trulia and Zillow, we recognized that there was lots of um, non-transactional traffic that was very valuable to us over the long run, right? When we started Solve, we built the site, both our acquisition vehicle as well as our re-engagement around the transaction, right? So you're only on Solve if you actually want a visit, 
right, Jess, you quoted some numbers. I'll give you the update. You know, we were tracking pre-pandemic at roughly a million visits per month. Again, really transactional traffic. That's a big number in our world. Mm -hmm. November was 14, mm -hmm. 14 million. Right. Again, fully transactional traffic. Really, that growth driven by typical needs. You're right. I'm sick. I have a cold. I need to figure out what to do. But all of the, the big surge in growth really driven by COVID testing. And we happen to have the largest distributed platform of COVID testing in the country because that, again, is the asset that we already built. Right. Urgent care centers, also hospital systems, but really urgent care centers are in every community across the country. Right. Over 80 percent of them are offering COVID testing, which will also end up being vaccine centers, right, and vaccine distribution centers, particularly at their later phases. Mm -hmm. And so where we found ourselves was the assets we'd built was solving the job to be done for the consumer right now that is super acute. Yep. And there were really Google, us, CVS, and Walgreens who could do it. And so for us, this moment is around solving that problem for the consumer, making sure our software for the supply side enables them to deal with this really high velocity, and then transitioning to vaccine distribution and I have optimism around all of it, April. First, like testing to become ubiquitous, cheaper, faster, right? Whether you're going in clinic or in the home, there's a lot of innovation happening there. And I think I'm really excited to play a role in ensuring that testing is ubiquitous and consumers are empowered through testing. Right? People think of it as a, um, if I have symptoms, get, get tested. But what's really happening is consumers increasingly are getting tested more as surveillance, just in case. Mm -hmm. Imagine if it is cheaper and you could do it in your home for three bucks. I get tested every day, right? I get my mm -hmm. kids tested every day. And you know what that means? They get to go to school. Like we get to go back to our local stores that I want to solicit because I see them all closing down. So I'm very, everyone's talking about vaccines. I'm really optimistic about testing and getting ubiquitous testing out across the country so that we can open up again. Right, so that we can live outside in our communities again. Yeah, and I think that's such a good reminder for those of us that sit um, outside of the healthcare world that you know testing is not just testing was not just a prerequisite to the vaccine, and now we're sort of done with that testing thing. Um, I, you know that that's going to likely be yes a part of our lives for a while. A hundred percent. And for those of us that don't have underlying conditions and are not in some of the early groups, we shouldn't be locked in our homes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's those two things, more pre prevalence of testing. It's certainly going to be a driver for our business, but that aside, like it matters, right? Um, and then vaccine and availability and just this incredible project around um, getting it done so quickly. So I'm optimistic. Yeah. I'm smiling listening Fantastic. to this because you're both um, giving us an optimistic look forward, which is wonderful. I also think, Heather, just hearing your story, it, to me, it just reminds me of the best of Silicon Valley. It's building a company of consequence, of, you know, um, drawing upon what you've learned at all these different chapters of your career and tackling a really tough problem and just having incredible impact. And I mentioned earlier in the in the show, look, I've used Solve to get a, a COVID test here in Seattle, um, and the experience was amazing. And I just like smiled seeing your company bringing that to life, um, and the growth and your leadership this year. I just think, I think you're setting um, an incredible example for um, for founders and CEOs. And I just so appreciate you telling the story with us. I've got one last thing to, to wrap us up. Sure. So, as you know, our hashtag Angels Group is April myself and for other women. And what we've tried to do over the last 
six years since we started, is just build a little bit more community mm. in Silicon Valley. Bring people together, have a conversation, mm-hmm. make the journey feel less lonely, tell some of the stories that haven't um, haven't hit the main stage but deserve to be on the main stage. And part of that also is just paying it forward um, yeah. and highlighting other people. And I'd love to know as we wrap up, who has inspired you this year or who do you admire and look up to and who should we... Um, Who's someone we should all know uh, who's made an impact in your career? Oh, that's a great question. First, um, thanks to the Angels meetups, I met all of you. I got invited to one of those dinners mm-hmm. uh, where Patrick Collison was speaking. Yeah. Uh, and it was an incredible introduction, again, to the best of Silicon Valley. So thank you for doing that. So there are so many incredible people that I look up to, but I'll name one and one piece of advice that she gave recently that has just stuck with me, uh, which is Jen Tejada the CEO of PagerDuty. I wish I could do a more secret person that you've never heard of. No, she's amazing. But Jen is just so good. No, but I just want to say I'm also a huge fangirl, so I'm so excited. I mean, she's great. Well, I mean, the thing that she shared, which I just think for every, particularly for founders who are from less traditional backgrounds, right? Um, I'm going to make some broad statements which might not be true. So forgive me, right? But... um, there might be more questioning of yourself because there's not a lot of you that exists out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see that a lot, right? I see people feel like the bar needs to be 10 times higher for them because realistically it has had to be. But she just had one piece of advice, which I thought was so great, which is back yourself. Like if you back yourself, then other people will back you. And I just think that is so powerful. There are so many great tips that exist out in the world on how to build your network and all the right things to do. But that that nugget. Like if I can back myself, then Teresa Gao and James Slavitt and Bill Gurley can back me. But if I can't, then why would they? Right. And so I'll leave you with that tidbit and everyone should listen to anything that Jen Tahada says, because I think she is just fabulous. I mean, I, I, I love that. And I, think that, uh, so, you know, angel investing is obviously something that we do and we think about a lot, but I think it's always a good question, which is, would, would you write an angel, angel check to yourself? And hopefully the mm-hmm. answer is, is always yes. Absolutely. Um, and if it is, then get to it. So, um, and well, you are an inspiration to us. We are all just so grateful to know you, um, to have you in our world and just rooting for you and excited to see where solve goes. Thank you, ladies. I appreciate having you guys on the journey with me along the way. And this has been so fun. Go Angels. Heather, thank you so much. And and one more thing. Yeah. Happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Don't get after it. <laughs> and that's a wrap for the second episode of the Hashtag Angels podcast. Next week, we'll talk real estate trends and what's going on in Miami and other global tech hotspots with Claire Tilkey, a real estate investor and executive based in Hong Kong. Claire is amazing, and there's so much more to be said about that episode, but I'm going to leave it to you to tune in to hear it all. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and review. It really helps listeners find us. And as always, you can send us feedback on Twitter at hashtag angels. The Hashtag Angels podcast is a production of H Industries. The episode was produced and edited by Matt Herrero, and our theme music was composed by Toby Forsman of Whipsong Music. Thank you for listening, and we see you next week. <laughs>